Hello, my name is Moriarty, and this is part 8 of my deep dive into the history of video games. 2007 was a wild frontier year for the video game industry, with new faces and blockbuster franchises making their grand entrance. While the world outside starts to look bleaker, a global recession setting in, the digital world has never been brighter. Assassin's Creed, The Witcher, and Uncharted leaped onto the scene, each setting out to carve their own niche and write their own stories. We also saw Team Fortress 2 escape from development hell, finally releasing after nearly a decade of anticipation. But it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. The Xbox 360 was plagued with the notorious Red Ring of Death. The Red Rings are the hottest thing on some Xboxes, literally a sign the console may have cooked itself. Becoming a cautionary tale for hardware developers and highlighting the need for rigorous quality control and customer support. In an attempt to move past this debacle, Microsoft announced the Xbox 360 Elite, a new model designed to address the hardware failures that had been plaguing the console. A name that began to echo louder this year? Activision. After acquiring a series of developers, they announced a merge with Vivendi, getting their hands on Blizzard and Sierra Entertainment in the process, and foreshadowing a trend of consolidation in the industry. Once the ink dried and the approvals were in, the merger would give birth to the largest gaming company on the planet. Meanwhile, EA continued its acquisition spree, snapping up both Pandemic Studios and BioWare, further expanding its influence in the gaming industry. However, not all relationships in the industry were strengthening. Bungie, the powerhouse behind the Halo series, parted way with Microsoft under less-than-friendly terms. This decision was driven by a vision that Bungie harbored for a game that would transcend the boundaries of Halo, offering a more expansive and MMO-like experience. However, this vision was not in alignment with Microsoft's plans for the Halo franchise, which aimed at releasing new entries every few years, thereby transforming it into a long-standing series. This divergence in creative paths, coupled with Bungie's aspiration for independence, led to the pivotal split. As part of the separation agreement, Microsoft retained the rights to the Halo intellectual property, while Bungie was obligated to deliver two more Halo games, Halo 3 ODST and Halo Reach. In return, Microsoft agreed to relinquish their partial ownership of Bungie, including their rights to any new intellectual property created or owned by Bungie. Bungie's desire to break away from being perceived as a one-dimensional FPS developer was at odds with Microsoft's vision for Halo's future. This separation allowed Bungie the freedom to chase their ambitions independently. Meanwhile, Microsoft established a new subsidiary, 343 Industries, to carry forward the legacy of the Halo franchise. Amidst these twists and turns, the digital marketplace started to blossom, with Nintendo's WiiWare and Xbox's Live Arcade revolutionizing how we buy and play games. These platforms provided a new avenue for developers to reach gamers, bypassing traditional retail channels and offering a wider range of unique and innovative titles. Bioshock was the perfect storm, a convergence of narrative depth, unique gameplay mechanics, and striking art direction. Rapture, the game's setting, was a crumbling utopia at the bottom of the ocean, a dystopian labyrinth of art deco architecture and deep-sea claustrophobia. But more than that, it's a symbol. The game's narrative focuses on objectivism gone awry, largely channeled through the founder of Rapture, Andrew Ryan. This wasn't your typical video game villain. He was complex, erudite, and profoundly idealistic, echoing the philosophies of Ayn Rand, from whom his character derives its name. You can't ignore the real-world implications of the story. It struck a nerve with players who were watching capitalism and technology create fissures in society. This was the year before the 2008 financial crisis. People were starting to question the very systems that Andrew Ryan embraced. Bioshock made people talk, not just about the game, but also about these bigger issues. Ken Levine, the mind behind the game, was often seen 
seen as something of a genius after the release of Bioshock. Levine is often praised for his storytelling, but let's not forget his keen sense for interactivity. He seamlessly integrated the game's narrative into the gameplay mechanics. You know, the plasmid-based abilities weren't just fun to use, they were part of the moral fabric of the game. The substance that gives you those abilities, Adam, is the reason for Rapture's downfall and its corrupt society. It's a consumable commodity that you need, but feel morally conflicted about using. Levine didn't just hand you superpowers, he made you grapple with the ethics of using them. Of course, no discussion about Bioshock would be complete without talking about its groundbreaking twist. What's less discussed, however, is how that twist not only serves as a plot device, but also as a meta-commentary on the nature of video games themselves, about the linearity of choices and how, even in games that offer multiple outcomes, you're still constrained by the paths the developer have laid out for you. In a genre that often struggled to convey narrative depth, Bioshock used its twist to shatter our preconceptions about storytelling in video games. It's a narrative device that keeps people talking and studying the game, even 16 years later. When it comes to its place in video game lineage, Bioshock pays homage to its forebears like Deus Ex and System Shock. The inclusion of Shock in its name is no mere coincidence. These were titles that blended gameplay and narrative in a seamless fashion, and Bioshock took that to the next level. It didn't just emulate its predecessors. It took the essence of what made them impactful and morphed it into something accessible yet challenging, modern yet timeless. The gaming community was awash with technological advancements, burgeoning genres, and industry shifts. Yet the PC gaming industry seemed to be on a trajectory that not many found encouraging. Let's consider some context. At this time, a whopping 65% of PC gaming was dominated by World of Warcraft and its first expansion, Burning Crusade. Outside of this juggernaut, the PC gaming market was relatively paltry, holding less than 5% of the entire industry's sales. Big PC releases like Crisis and Unreal Tournament 3 struggled to find their footing. Enter Valve, a company that never quite adhered to the status quo. In this milieu, they released The Orange Box, a peculiar multi-game package that seemed counterintuitive but ended up being revolutionary. Now we often remember the Orange Box for Half-Life 2 and Team Fortress 2, but at the time, it was Portal that stole the show. Portal wasn't a brand name, it wasn't a franchise. It was the weird free game being tacked onto the Orange Box. A peculiarity, at best, at worst, a distraction from the Half-Life 2 and Team Fortress 2 main courses. However, Portal was an unexpected gem. Nothing less than a narrative and mechanical work of art. You found yourself in a labyrinthine facility governed by Gladys, an AI with a twisted sense of humor. The game employed a seemingly simple mechanic create portals to navigate through increasingly complex puzzles. Yet it was how Portal combined this with a compelling story and inventive level design that made it transformative. Portal challenged your understanding of space, gravity, and movement within a three-dimensional environment. In doing so, it tapped into a foundational human experience, the way we interact with and perceive the space around us. Portal didn't just provide puzzles, it prodded players to think differently about the dimensions they inhabited in-game. This nuance may have been eclipsed in modern dialogue by memes like the cake is a lie, but it was groundbreaking at the time and has influenced numerous puzzle platformers since. Beyond its innovative mechanics and storytelling, Portal's inclusion in the Orange Box served as a catalyst for change in multiple areas. The Orange Box itself disrupted retail norms and expectations. Remember, this was a time when brick and mortar stores dictated much of the game market. Retailers had narrow perspectives on what could be sold. How could they stock their shelves with a game like Portal, which didn't fit neatly into any existing category? It was a AA $20 game, 
taking shelf space from AAA $50 games with an unknown non-franchise brand from a small-timer company who was, outside of this game, trying to compete directly with the big boxes through their digital store. Valve bypassed this roadblock by bundling it with two other heavy hitters. In doing so, they showcased the limitations of physical retail space while opening up a horizon of possibilities for diverse game genres. In fact, this move to bundle multiple games together changed how we think about the value proposition in game packages. Prior to the Orange Box, bundles typically contained either old or lower quality titles. By packaging Portal, a novel experience with well-anticipated titles, Valve pushed the market to rethink its practices. Retailers had to consider new configurations for value, while consumers got a taste of how diverse and innovative video games could be for the price of a single title. This played a role in normalizing the diverse range of games we see today, many of which might have struggled in the more restrictive retail environment of the past. That it also served as a Trojan horse to introducing Steam to physical game customers was just icing on the top. Valve had always been the unconventional player, but this elevated them to almost sage-like status. They demonstrated foresight not just in game design, but also in understanding market dynamics, consumer psychology, and even retail economics, they showed that they could not only build games, but also build the industry. Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare was a tactical swerve from the tried-and-true formula of reenacting historical conflicts. It propelled players into the current geopolitical landscape, offering both a relatable and terrifyingly realistic experience that other games had rarely touched upon. By making this shift, Infinity Ward could explore new kinds of narratives, not bound by the events or outcomes of real-world history. It also allowed them to update the weaponry and tactics offering a fresh gameplay experience that still, almost miraculously, retained the core DNA of the franchise. The solo experience was not just a sideshow to the multiplayer, it was its own riveting tale, a mosaic of different perspectives from soldiers engaged in modern combat. Levels like All Gillied Up provided a level of tension that was at once cinematic and interactive, offering a gameplay experience that required not just sharp reflexes, but tactical foresight. The campaign was punctuated by moments that have since become iconic. The detonation of a nuclear bomb, the death of a player character, and so on. Each event was presented with a level of care and precision that made the game a compelling experience from start to finish. Of course, any conversation about modern warfare would be incomplete without mentioning its groundbreaking multiplayer experience. By incorporating RPG elements such as experience points and unlockable content into a fast-paced first-person shooter setting, Infinity Ward created an addicting cycle of gameplay that kept players coming back. The progression system gave everyone something to work for, regardless of skill level. This wasn't just an arena, it was a battlefield where you grew, adapted, and were continually rewarded for your efforts. And it wasn't just the major elements that made this game stand out, it was also the minutiae, the customizable killstreaks, the variance in game modes, the intricate map design that when pieced together made this experience not just another game, but a defining moment in the evolution of online multiplayer gaming. The word influential is often bandied about recklessly, but in the case of Modern Warfare's multiplayer, the term is wholly deserved. The echoes of its design philosophy can be seen in almost every competitive online game that has come out since. Our first electronic arts game to show up in a time capsule in a long while, Mass Effect. Bioware had been carving its narrative chops with games like Knights of the Old Republic, which was steeped in the expansive universe of Star Wars. However, George Lucas was notorious for being hands-on with Star Wars properties. This period was also considered by many to be a low point for the Star Wars franchise, given the divisive reception of Episodes 2 and 3. So for Bioware, creating a narrative-driven experience that they had full ownership of was the dream. Enter Mass 
Mass Effect, a title where they could freely express their storytelling prowess, with characters, worlds, and narratives crafted from the ground up, unshackled from the whims of external intellectual property managers. Now, Mass Effect was and still is often lauded for its branching narrative, but it's not merely the variety of choices that sets it apart, it's the gravity those choices carry. The game humanizes its characters, even the non-human ones, with linguistic nuance and emotional complexity. When you're making choices in Mass Effect, you're not just selecting a path for Commander Shepard, you're choosing how to interact with a crew that feels as palpably real as your best friends or your worst enemies. The game sets you up in dilemmas that aren't just ethical, but emotional, forcing you to weigh your heart against your mind, to confront biases or reaffirm your principles. The repercussions of these choices can be far-reaching, echoing throughout the entire series, and that was groundbreaking. Combat in Mass Effect was a blend of strategic elements with real-time action, effectively offering a playground for both RPG aficionados and shooter fans. While the mechanics had room for refinement, a fact Bioware acknowledged and improved upon in subsequent titles, the notion of molding combat to fit the story's pacing was intriguing. It ensured that even the most intense firefights didn't feel disjointed from the narrative canvas, but instead felt like an integral part of the unfolding epic. This harmonization of combat and story was a subtle touch that went a long way in immersion, and it laid the groundwork for how action RPGs today balance both elements. Rock Band came at a pivotal time for Harmonix, having essentially built the rhythm genre into what we know today with games like Guitar Hero, Harmonix parted ways with Red Octane and found a new partner in MTV Networks. With Guitar Hero, the team had set a foundation, but they were far from done. They envisioned a game that wasn't just about emulating a guitar player, but rather an entire band, a social experience that capitalized on the music itself. Rock Band didn't just present itself as an extension of Guitar Hero. It expanded the boundaries. The game demanded a more extensive array of peripherals, guitars, drum sets, and even a microphone. Whereas Guitar Hero could be a solitary endeavor, Rock Band was unapologetically designed to be a collective experience. At its heart, the game encouraged human interaction, collaboration, and even a little showmanship. This aspect is often overlooked in the discourse about the game, but it's crucial to understanding Rock Band's significance. It wasn't just a rhythm game. It was an exercise in collective, real-time problem-solving, glued together by the universal language of music. The ambition didn't stop at the peripherals or the gameplay. Rock Band was perhaps one of the earliest and most successful examples of a game supported by a consistent, expansive library of downloadable content. Eventually, the game would have over 4,000 songs available for download, a staggering number that turned it into a platform rather than a mere standalone title. This was quite revolutionary at the time and set a precedent for how games could continue to provide value and extend their lifespans long after the initial purchase. The weekly rhythm of new releases became a masterstroke in keeping the community engaged and committed. Yet as glamorous as Rock Band's success was, its story also serves as a cautionary title about the complexities of corporate involvement in creative enterprises. Harmonix initially found an unusual ally in MTV Networks, a division of media giant Viacom. However, not long after, after it became clear that conglomerates like Viacom weren't particularly well-suited for the nitty-gritty of game development and distribution. Viacom couldn't leverage the same efficiencies that a dedicated gaming company like Activision could. It's a key lesson in how the rapid consolidation in the industry around that time wasn't as straightforward as merely buying success. Activision understood this, hence their strategy was focused more on acquiring existing game companies rather than trying to shoehorn gaming into a broader media business model. Harmonix eventually sought to regain its independence, illuminating another industry trend, the perpetual tension between artistic freedom and financial stability. 
The development of Halo 3 was in many ways a moment of reckoning for Bungie. The challenge was not just creating a game, but delivering on a promise. The weight of expectations following Halo 2 was enormous. Bungie was not merely tasked with creating a sequel, they bore the responsibility of crafting a fitting conclusion to one of the most iconic trilogies in gaming history. This was a company at its peak, but also one under incredible scrutiny. At the heart of Bungie Studio, there was a clear intention, rectification. They were fully aware of the compromises they had to make with Halo 2 due to time constraints. With Halo 3, they had a chance to not just improve upon their prior shortcomings, but also to innovate. From the outset, it was evident that Bungie was in a reflective mood assessing their past while envisioning a grand future for the franchise. A sense of authenticity underscored Bungie's approach to Halo 3. They weren't just developing a game, they were curating an experience. This is perhaps why they invested so heavily in world building. The Halo universe wasn't just a backdrop to the story, it was an essential character in its own right. Bungie expanded the lore, integrating moments from books, spin-offs, and other media. They gave depth to the universe, making it richer and more immersive. The introduction of the theater mode and the saved films feature was a nod to the community's dedication. Players could record, save, and share their in-game exploits. These weren't just features, they were symbols of trust. Bungie was empowering its community, trusting them to represent the game to the wider world. But what truly set Halo 3 apart was its commitment to emotional storytelling. The finale of Master Chief's initial journey was a masterclass in empathetic game design. From the nuanced interactions between Master Chief and Cortana, to the deeper exploration of the Arbiter's character arc, Bungie showcased a maturity in storytelling that was rare in first-person shooters. The game's climax was both thrilling and somber, a testament to the sacrifices made throughout the saga. Bungie's evolution as a company during this period was profound. They were transitioning from being a game studio to a cultural phenomenon. They were acutely aware of their influence and they wielded it responsibly. Through forums, community events, and regular interactions with fans, Bungie was fostering a unique bond, one built on mutual respect and admiration. As Halo 3 launched to commercial success and critical acclaim, there was a collective sigh of relief at Bungie. They had delivered on their promise. But beyond the accolades and sales figures, the game's legacy was solidified by the memories it created, the friendships it fostered, and the stories it told. It was a fitting end to a chapter, but as history would show, it was only the beginning for Bungie and the Halo Saga. In 1998, we introduced bonus level segments in our gaming time capsules to spotlight games that may not have made the mainstream headlines, but have had an undeniable impact on gaming culture. Think of these segments like the side quests in World of Warcraft or the hidden packages in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Not the main event, but an essential part of the experience. Fast forward to 2007 and the idea still holds. These bonus level segments give us a chance to discuss titles that have shaped trends or communities, even if they don't get a full chapter in the history books. Crisis is often cited as the pinnacle of graphical performance, almost transcending its status as a video game to become a benchmarking tool for computer hardware. And while the memes and jokes about can it run Crisis are part of internet history, what's often lost is how Crisis wasn't just a tech demo. It presented an intricate sandbox-style level design that really set it apart from other first-person shooters. It wasn't just about jaw-dropping visuals, it was a complete package that offered players multiple ways to approach objectives and was frankly a pretty good game. Crisis broke the mold by balancing cutting-edge visuals with intricate gameplay mechanics, a feat many games still struggle to achieve. In this sense, Crisis was more than a pretty face. It was a harbinger of what was possible in a truly immersive 3D environment. What's sad is that so few players ever got to experience that, with rumored sales of around 90,000 units in 2007. 
Certainly, as computers got more powerful, it did sell better, with more people wanting to experience this legendary game. But by that point, it was a bit late to change the perception of the game as a glorified tech demo. However, in this case, its sacrifice was worth it, as it provided a clear demarcation in game tech. Can it run Crisis? And if not, why not? Avatar The Burning Earth, on the other hand, epitomizes what we might call the achievement hunting era. The game itself is largely forgettable. However, with just a few minutes of your time, you could get a full 1,000 points of Gamerscore. Gamerscore was not just a number, it was a social currency, street cred, proof you were a real gamer. With the simplest of tasks, completing a single combo, you could earn an extra 1,000 Gamerscore. As you might imagine, anyone who cared about this was quick to take advantage of it. Avatar The Burning Earth wasn't so much about the gameplay as it was about exploiting a meta-game trend, a unique moment that speaks volumes about gaming culture. God of War, today a franchise emblematic of PlayStation's success, was at the time released on the PlayStation 2 rather than the advanced PS3. This decision, shaped by David Jaffe and his team, captured the dilemmas of a console transition phase, a period of evolution and risk. David Jaffe's role in the gaming industry is a complex one. He's garnered a reputation as a divisive figure in the gaming community, one of the most disliked and controversial. His brash social media presence and wildly inflammatory takes have made him a lightning rod for both praise and criticism. Mixed into that is a history of very mixed reception to his later projects. There's no doubt that his claim to fame remains his work on God of War. This does bring up interesting questions about the legacy of developers who have one monumental hit, but whose later work fails to resonate in the same way. This era saw giants like Sega and Sony wrestling with how much autonomy to grant their creative directors, juxtaposed against the potential financial fallout of not embracing the new generation. There's a noted trend of giving directors and studio heads a significant amount of creative freedom. This more laissez-faire approach has produced some of the most iconic and innovative games in history. But it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, the hands-off approach has led to standout, auteur-driven projects like Hideo Kojima's Metal Gear Solid series under Konami, or Yokotaro's work on games like Nier Automata. On the other hand, it sometimes leads to decisions that, from a business perspective, are head-scratchers, like releasing God of War on the PS2 when the PS3 was already on the market. This contributed to a growing realization among corporations that some form of oversight or strategic alignment was necessary. As the industry matured and the stakes got higher, companies started realizing the need for a balance between creative freedom and business acumen. In contrast, Western counterparts like EA and Activision were much quicker to adopt a more stringent, top-down approach, prioritizing shareholder value and market trends, sometimes to the detriment of originality and innovation. This tightening of the reins likely has its roots in moments like these when a high-profile game bucks the technological trend for the sake of reaching a broader but outdated user base. Lastly, we have UEFA Champions League 0607, a game that mostly fell into obscurity but has an undeniable impact on today's gaming economy. Andrew Wilson, the producer of the game, saw an opportunity for experimentation. Co-opting the Gachapon system, a monetization method already used in Eastern markets and free-to-play games like MapleStory and ZT Online, he ushered in an era where game publishers could monetize players long after the initial point of sale. This model was later adopted in other EA titles like FIFA's Ultimate Team and controversially in single-player experiences like Mass Effect 3. Wilson, a businessman first and foremost, exploited the industry 
industries pivot towards this form of monetization, fueling his meteoric rise from game producer to head of EA Sports, and then to EA's CEO. His approach, prioritizing revenue streams over player experience, left a divisive mark on the industry, turning gaming from a product-based to a service-based model, and inviting ethical scrutiny over practices that border on gambling. This transactional philosophy shaped not only EA's fortune, but also set a precedent for other industry players, including Zynga with Farmville and MMOs like Star Trek Online. While Wilson's model proved lucrative, contributing to his promotion and EA's ongoing profitability, it raised ethical concerns and affected the integrity of game design by orienting it around monetization first. 2008 was the year that the indie game scene truly skyrocketed, and it all started with Xbox Live's Summer of Arcade. This groundbreaking promotion not only introduced indie games to the masses, but it also kickstarted a creative boom that inspired countless developers to chase their dreams. Over the course of five glorious weeks, gamers were treated to a smorgasbord of innovative titles that would change the industry forever. It's impossible to overstate the impact of the Summer Arcade on indie gaming. It was more than just a promotion. It was a platform that allowed independent developers to stand shoulder to shoulder with industry giants. Through incentives like prize draws and special discounts, this event ushered in a new era in gaming and gave indie developers a much-needed boost, leveling the playing field and encouraging innovation. This explosion of creativity led to a more diverse and exciting gaming landscape, with indie developers tackling subjects and styles that mainstream studios might have shied away from. Indie developers injected fresh ideas and perspectives, pushing the boundaries of what games could be and how they could be experienced. It wasn't just about Castle Crashers, Galaga Legions, or Geometry Wars Retro Evolved 2. It was about creating an environment where innovative, quirky, and offbeat games could thrive. And thrive they did. The indie gaming industry that we know today, it owes a huge debt to the summer of arcade. It set the stage, pulled back the curtain, and let the indie game show begin. And the gaming industry has never been the same since. So what can we learn from this pivotal moment in gaming history? How has the rise of indie games impacted the creative landscape of the industry? And what would the gaming world look like today without the influence of these indie trailblazers? Rockstar's GTA series had already earned its reputation for freedom and chaos, but GTA 4 took a different approach. Forget what you knew about sandbox worlds where NPCs existed just for you to interact with. Liberty City had a pulse of its own. From the nuanced radio stations to the hilarious yet insightful internet cafes, everything in the game world served a dual function, entertainment and social critique. Even the game's main protagonist, Nico Bellic, was a complex figure, embodying the immigrant experience and the broken American dream. He wasn't just a digital avatar, he was a lens through which players could view and critique modern America. Where the successful GTA clone series and competitor Saints Row leaned into the absurdity of the genre, GTA 4 leaned out. It eschewed over-the-top hijinks for gritty realism. This wasn't merely a cosmetic choice, it represented a diverging philosophy in the design of open-world games. Saints Row said, let's crank this up to 11, while GTA 4 decided to hold a mirror to the world. Never before had a game integrated environmental interaction and character movement so seamlessly. If you tried running down a flight of stairs, Nico might trip and tumble, just like a real person. Every car chase, every shootout felt distinct, thanks to the dynamic interplay between the game's systems. It was a technological marvel, but more importantly, it served the game's larger themes of chaos and unpredictability in a city that felt all too real. 
Fallout 1 had sold around 50,000 units and Fallout 2 roughly five times that. These weren't blockbuster numbers, they were cult classics. And it's precisely that positioning, known but not ubiquitously so, that allowed Bethesda to reimagine Fallout 3 as they saw fit. Bethesda had already done the almost unthinkable with the Elder Scrolls series. Morrowind was their magnum opus, dragging what was a fairly traditional Western RPG into a more dynamic, interactive world. Now, with Fallout 3, they applied the same treatment to a franchise that had even less of a hardline fanbase. We're talking about a game that went from being an isometric, narrative-focused title to a sprawling, open-world, first-person RPG. A change as radical as it was audacious. The desolate, post-apocalyptic DC landscape was a masterstroke in environmental storytelling. Every ruin, every corroded signpost, every mutated creature had a tale to tell. The VATS system was an astute nod to the franchise's turn-based roots while modernizing the gameplay. It wasn't just a shooting mechanic, it was a blend of strategy and real-time action that felt, well, both retro and innovative. The Karma system wasn't new to the Fallout series, but what Bethesda did with it was beyond anything we had seen at that point. Your choices had weight, affecting not just the endgame, but your moment-to-moment -moment interactions. And they took it one step further by tying it all back into your role-playing experience. Did you decide to detonate the bomb in Megaton or disarm it? Your choice there influenced how characters interacted with you for the rest of the game. Left 4 Dead's emphasis on teamwork isn't just a bullet point on the back of the game case, it's the lifeblood of the Left 4 Dead experience. Yes, many games have cooperative modes, but Left 4 Dead designed its very mechanics around the necessity for teamwork. Ammo is scarce, special infected zombies require coordinated takedowns, and healing your teammate is often more beneficial than going lone wolf. By making resources scant and challenges insurmountable alone, the game ingeniously engineered moments that necessitated cooperation, creating a sense of organic camaraderie. The dynamic AI director wasn't just some canned AI algorithm that Valve whipped up to send a few zombies your way. The AI director was a response to the scripted nature of first-person shooters of the era. If you were breezing through, expect the AI to throw a curveball, or a horde of zombies, to up the stakes. This intelligent algorithm didn't just make the game more challenging, it made every playthrough a unique narrative experience. In essence, the director was the invisible fifth player, the dungeon master, constantly shaping the game's tempo and tension. The game sits at the intersection of several evolutions in the industry. First, it represents the pinnacle of Valve's expertise in crafting deeply engaging multiplayer experiences, a logical progression from their work on Team Fortress and Counter-Strike. Second, it reflected the maturation of AI technology, proving that the other side could be just as unpredictable and challenging as human opponents. While the Wii's focus on accessibility and casual gaming undeniably defined its era, the landscape wasn't universally favorable. First-party titles like Wii Sports, Wii Fit, and Wii Play, simple, bundle-sold games aimed at ultra-casual audiences, dominated the sales charts. Then there was Mario Kart Wii, a juggernaut that masterfully balanced casual appeal with enough complexity to engage hardcore fans. This this game alone sold an extraordinary 40 million copies, a feat that is not just impressive, but indicative of Nintendo's unique talent for making universally appealing games. However, let's not let these eye-popping numbers mask the broader issues. The top-selling games for the Wii were all first-party titles, often bundled with the console or with Wii accessories. Third-party games found it difficult to achieve similar success, representing a significant concern for the platform. In fact, at this time, even Sony's PSP was outselling the Wii in Japan. So what does Mario Kart Wii's exceptional performance tell us? It underscores Nintendo's unique capacity to decode what its audience wants, but it also shines a spotlight on a platform that was, to put it bluntly, 
not particularly hospitable to third-party developers. Often overlooked is Mario Kart Wii's online multiplayer suite, a surprising move from a Nintendo that had been historically sluggish to embrace internet-based gameplay. While competitors like Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 had already made online multiplayer a staple, Nintendo was languishing behind. Mario Kart Wii changed that, featuring robust online capabilities that allowed races, battles, and even tournaments. This wasn't just Nintendo catching up, it was an admission, however tacit, that the future of console gaming was inextricably linked to online connectivity. Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts seems like a peculiar inclusion in this time capsule, yet it captures a pivotal moment in gaming history in ways that some of the year's top sellers cannot. Nuts and Bolts marked a departure from the gameplay that fans had come to love in the Banjo-Kazooie franchise. Instead of your traditional platformer, the game veered off into an entirely new direction, leaning heavily into vehicle creation and customization. Now, the critical consensus was generally favorable. The vehicle editor was lauded for its depth, the visuals and music were praised. However, there was a disconnect between the critical assessment and the public reception, which was indicative of a deeper issue. Why did the gameplay mechanics change in the first place? Once a powerhouse in the gaming world, Rare revolutionized the industry with titles dating back to the ZX Spectrum era. The company survived the 1983 video game crash, and produced iconic games like Donkey Kong Country and GoldenEye 007. However, a turning point came in 2002 when Microsoft acquired Rare. Initially, the acquisition appeared to be a strategic way for Microsoft to enrich their Xbox library with innovative titles. Yet in the subsequent years, it became clear that Rare's creative spirit was being constrained as the company was nudged into roles that didn't align with its historical expertise. Nuts and Bolts had a robust vehicle editor that gave players an enormous amount of freedom to create anything from a simplistic cart to an elaborate flying machine. And here lies the paradox. The vehicle editor was both the game's most innovative feature and its Achilles heel. Fans of the original series were drawn to the charming worlds and characters, the humor, the platforming challenges. When Nuts and Bolts shifted the focus towards engineering your way through the game, it alienated a core section of its audience. It demonstrated a kind of creative dissonance that can happen when a franchise tries to reinvent itself without considering the attributes that made it memorable in the first place. By the end of 2008, Nuts and Bolts had sold just 140,000 copies in the United States, and it signaled the end of an era for the franchise, and also Rare as a developer. Shortly afterwards, Microsoft laid off staff at Rare and transitioned them into focusing on Kinect and Xbox avatars, a sad coda for a studio that once led the industry. The the demise of the Banjo-Kazooie franchise and the repurposing of Rare can be seen as emblematic of broader trends during this period. We saw a move towards safer, more formulaic titles and the corporatization of game development where financial logic outweighed creative risk. Nuts and Bolts serves as a cautionary title about what can happen when market-driven decisions override creative integrity. Planet Earth or as the rest of the Omniverse call it, the Orb of Dreamers, the occupants of which spend so much time asleep and dreaming, their vast imaginations humming away, charged with creative energy. Where does it all go? Up through a cerebrumbilical cord where it collects and melds with all the other dreamers' energy something wonderful happens. It forms a world, an ethereal dreamscape of adventure and possibilities, an abstract plane of beautiful wonderment just waiting to be explored. And you can go there now. 
Little Big Planet is more aptly described as a revolution in community-driven creativity. Finding this in the time capsule, we uncover not just a charming puzzle platformer, but a manifesto on the democratization of game design. The game's real magic didn't just lie in its aesthetics or its engaging platforming gameplay. It resided in the tools it offered to the community. Intuitive is the word most would use, but that doesn't quite capture the groundbreaking nature of it. At the time, most game customization options were relegated to PC games and often required a level of expertise in coding or graphic design. Little Big Planet shrugged off these limitations, placing a robust set of development tools in the hands of everyday players. What emerged was nothing short of a renaissance of creativity. Levels that mimicked popular games, levels that served as interactive art pieces, even levels that acted as calculators or computers. The breadth of imagination on display was staggering. This was a game that didn't just encourage creativity, it depended on it. It wasn't merely about giving tools to players, it's how the game motivated everyone to be both a consumer and a creator, generating a symbiotic relationship between those two roles. You could argue that Little Big Planet pioneered the concept of gaming as a social media platform. Yes, YouTube and Twitch let gamers share and discuss content, but Little Big Planet let the game itself be the medium through which you expressed shared and engaged. Players rated levels, offered constructive criticisms, and formed collaborations long before the term influencer and content creator had even penetrated the mainstream lexicon. This ethos of mutual exchange galvanized the community, transforming each player into an active stakeholder in the game's expansive universe. Dead Space represented a turning point for electronic arts. While the company had seen its share of success with original IPs like The Sims, the focus had largely shifted towards acquiring popular franchises and sports licenses. CEOs Larry Probst and John Riccatello led EA down a path that was lucrative, but also made it challenging for them to directly compete with the creative arsenal of Hollywood studios. Dead Space emerged as a compelling answer to that challenge. The game's atmosphere owes a debt of gratitude to the film Event Horizon. Glenn Schofield, one of the minds behind Dead Space, often cited Event Horizon's influence, specifically its clever camera work and the way it used the mizzen scene to tell the story, what we might call environmental storytelling. In Dead Space, this inspiration manifests in the way a spatter of blood on the wall can communicate more than a dozen lines of dialogue. The environment itself becomes a character in the narrative, working in tandem with audio cues and strategic lighting to deliver an immersive, pulse-pounding experience. The interconnected nature of these elements is rarely acknowledged, but is essential for the seamless horror the game delivers. Yet the real genius of Dead Space lies in its gameplay mechanics, particularly its strategic dismemberment system. While many games reward headshots or torso shots, Dead Space introduced the unnerving yet thrilling concept that shooting an enemy in the head might not be the best course of action. Instead, you needed to amputate limbs to disable or slow down your foes effectively. This broke away from the tradition of mindless shooting in horror games, compelling players to think before they shoot, turning even the most basic encounters into strategic puzzles. And the audacity in omitting any visible HUD for the player? In an era where games were increasingly hand-holding with invasive tutorials and ever-present HUD elements, Dead Space integrated everything into the game world. Your health was indicated by a spine-embedded meter, ammo counts appeared directly on the weapons, and navigation aids were part of the in-game holographic interface. This design choice, while easily overlooked, played a pivotal role in maintaining immersion and amplifying tension. Tucked into the side, more bonus levels. Facing financial collapse, Midway Games was on its last legs as it developed Mortal Kombat vs. DC Universe. The project was a high-risk endeavor, nothing short of a Hail Mary pass aimed at breathing life into a hemorrhaging company. With this game, Midway was tasked with the Herculean challenge of weaving together the gritty, violent world of Mortal Kombat and the family-friendly realm of DC Comics, two universes that on paper should 
should never coexist. Picture Scorpion and Superman sharing screen space without betraying the core sensibilities of either fanbase. The stakes were massive, and this amalgamation was an exercise in nuance and calculated risk-taking. The game was more than a quirky crossover. It embodied the growing phenomenon of cross-media engagement, well before the Marvel Cinematic Universe turned that concept into a cultural mainstay. Mortal Kombat vs. DC Universe revealed a burgeoning appetite for blending universes and lore, creating an amalgam that compelled audiences to reconsider what was possible within the confines of genre and intellectual property. Yet as much as it achieved creatively, the game couldn't fend off the inevitable. Midway's bankruptcy. While it garnered a moderate degree of success, it wasn't enough to rescue a sinking ship. What it did manage to offer was a poignant ending to Midway's legacy, a final flourish that encapsulated the tumultuous ride the company had been on for years. The game's place in history serves as a complex narrative that touches on corporate mismanagement, the challenges of over-leveraging assets, and the high-stakes gamble of creative innovation in an industry that doesn't always reward it. Mega Man 9 is intriguing for a variety of reasons, but its resurrection of classic 8-bit design was nothing short of a revolutionary act of nostalgia. In an era where video games were defined by their polygons and pixel counts, Capcom did something brazen. They released a game that could have easily existed on the Nintendo Entertainment System back in the late 80s. It wasn't just an homage, it was a reclamation of a forgotten language in game design. What's fascinating is the ripple effect this had across the industry. Mega Man 9 triggered a wave of retro revivals, proving to developers that the past could be profitable, that nostalgia had value. But even beyond the nostalgia factor, this title showcased the power of digital storefronts. Its distribution was a blueprint for how to get niche products into the hands of hungry consumers, sidestepping the high costs of physical production. This was the democratization of game publishing in real time. Metal Gear Solid 4 is an anomaly, an epic send-off for Solid Snake that's curiously ensnared by the very platform it was designed to celebrate. This was a narrative opus, dense with geopolitical intrigue and existential musings. It was sort of a masterclass in game storytelling. Yes, including those notoriously long cutscenes. But the most fascinating aspect is its relationship with hardware. Kojima essentially strong-armed Sony into releasing a backwards-compatible version of the PS3 just to meet the game's requirements. However, this decision has its own layer of irony. The game that once required Sony to adapt has now become a relic tethered forever to a single generation of hardware, in part because of the data formats and proprietary technology involved. Metal Gear Solid 4, in its grand ambition, encapsulated the tensions of its time. The hunger for storytelling depth and cinematic flair contrasted with the limitations and rapid obsolescence of gaming hardware. The game's current isolation to the PS3, an all-time forever PS3 exclusive, acts as a poignant reminder of how even the most groundbreaking titles can be subject to the unforgiving march of technology. And then we arrive at Braid, the darling of Xbox Live Arcade, which was more than just another indie game. At first, Braid may seem like a typical platformer, but its time-manipulating mechanics transformed it into something far more cerebral, with a narrative that unfolded like an intricate puzzle, complemented by lush, hand-painted art that gave each frame the weight of a canvas painting. But what's often overlooked is Braid's role in redefining how games could be read by players. It encouraged interpretive play. Each level, each puzzle was an allegorical element, making players consider the implications of time, choice, and consequence. This was ludonarrative cohesion at its finest, where gameplay mechanics were inseparable from narrative themes. It's a piece of digital literature, pushing players to think not just about how they play, but also why they play. This was a far cry from the perception of indie games as amateur endeavors. It kicked the door wide open for indie game development to exist as a legitimate, even profitable, segment of the gaming industry. Before Braid, indie games were curiosities. After Braid, they were contenders. Braid asserted that these games 
games could have intellectual and emotional gravitas, catalyzing an entire generation of game developers to infuse more thoughtful elements into their game designs. This is the game that Roger Ebert called pathetic in his essay about how video games could never be art, saying, no one in or out of the field has ever been able to cite a game worthy of comparison with the great poets, filmmakers, novelists, and poets. Last but certainly not least, we have God of War Chains of Olympus for the PSP, a title that redefined what we expected from handheld gaming. Until Chains of Olympus, many had doubted that the cinematic grandiosity of a God of War title could ever be successfully downscaled for a portable device. Yet, here was this game, defying expectations and serving up a nearly uncompromised God of War experience, complete with fluid combat, sprawling environments, and labyrinthine puzzles. The developers at Ready at Dawn, who later went on to create The Order 1886 and now focuses on VR titles under Facebook's umbrella, managed to leverage the PSP's hardware like no one had before, thereby shifting the entire paradigm surrounding handheld games. Before Chains of Olympus, handheld games were often seen as sort of lesser experience, a simplified version of console gaming. But this title dismissed that notion entirely, demanding to be taken as seriously as its console counterparts. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one.